Welcome, everybody, to the Jake Feinberg Show. Beautiful Saturday afternoon here in Tucson at KJLL The Jolt. As I continue my journey along interviewing my uh, jazz heroes in an effort to uh, articulate and highlight their their lives and uh, the meaning that they put into the arts and uh, our culture in the uh, in the 60s and 70s. And my guest today is uh, an unheralded po- polyrhythmic drummer, uh, Peter Magadini. He's a tremendous player who's worked with cats like Mos Allison and Don Menza, George Duke. He has formal education from the, from the San Francisco Conservatory of Music and uh, a master's degree from the University of Toronto. And he's also done studying abroad as well in a more uh, tribal sense with the, with the great tabla player Manaparush Mishra. He's also an author of uh, several books, uh, one entitled The Musician's Guide to Polyrhythms, which was voted number six on Modern Jazz Drummer Magazine list of the 25 greatest books of all time. That That is saying a lot. He continues to teach in the Bay Area today. I'm very jealous. He lives in Marin County. Um, he's also, uh, for a period of time in the 70s, uh, had a steady jazz gig in the Phoenix area. So there's a local angle to the uh, to the Jake Feinberg Show today. Peter Magadini, it's an honor to uh, welcome you to the Jake Feinberg Show. Jake, thanks. Thanks for having me on. You know, I, <clears throat> Peter, I, I um, want to start sort of back, and then <clears throat> I want to start at the uh, in the middle and go backwards, uh, just for for the uh, point of reference for my for my uh, audience. I I picked up uh, the album Polyrhythm in nineteen uh, from nineteen seventy five on on vinyl, and um, you know, Peter, I've been studying um, uh, Indian drumming relentlessly for the last probably four or five months, and in reading about you, uh, I was just kind of blown away uh, by the fact that, that this was really a passion of yours um, during the, uh, during the uh, early part of your career. And I was just hoping you could talk a little bit about um, how you started as a drummer. Were you a, were you a rock drummer or were you, and how did you, how did you veer eventually into, into polyrhythms? Okay, well, um... Uh, that's a whole lot of questions there. Uh, I'll start with um, the polyrhythm um, um, question first, uh, in that um, people in the music, uh, especially in the drum world, know me for this. Um, I was living in San Francisco going to the conservatory, uh, and actually uh, I didn't go to India. India came here. <laughs> yeah, and that's if right. you remember correctly... Uh, <laughs> Uh, George Harrison had, uh, with the Beatles, had uh, he had done some exploring of um, um, East Indian music, uh, and he had sort of brought Ravi Shankar to the forefront, and that was right in the middle of the hippie days uh, of 1965 in uh, here in uh, uh, San Francisco, and I was living here going to school, and uh, so. Uh, there was a group called the Society of Eastern Arts, and they brought the Ali Akbar Khan uh, ensemble to teach that summer, a couple, several summers in Berkeley at on the Berkeley campus at University of California. And so uh, I signed up for the Tava class one summer, and that's how I studied with uh, Mahaprush Misra. And uh, started out with a whole lot of tabla players, and it just ended up with four of us. And uh, three of us were musicians, and uh, one of them turned out to be Ram Dass. He was, it wasn't Ram Dass at the time, he was uh, uh, Richard Alpert. And uh, I think that was his first excursion into East Indian art and the culture as well. And uh, so it had a profound effect on everybody. With me, it, it turned out to be books. A Musician's Guide to Polyrhythms, Volume 1 and 2. And now it's called uh, Polyrhythms, The Musician's Guide. It's just one volume, and it's published by Hal Leonard. And uh, that's how that book came about. I was going to say, could you talk a little bit about um, the time uh, at the Ali Akbar Khan School? Because I've done a lot of research on that. And they were, it was, it's kind of funny because at the time they were, they were always kind of, you know, roving around looking for a permanent residence. And they found eventually... Uh, they settled on a place at the t- at a time when uh, Marin County was still relatively affordable, um, and you know, to me, in what I can read, uh, 
it sounds like a place where uh, they wanted to make education affordable. They didn't want to put pressures on students as far as tuition were concerned. It was about love of music. It was about reaching a certain cognition level. And it was ultimately about a shared experience through the music. And I was just hoping you could elaborate on that a little bit. Well, um, this was called the Society for the Eastern Arts when I went to it, and uh, it wasn't yet the Ali Akbar Khan School, and he hadn't yet moved here. He was still in India, um, and uh, he moved here and started his own school after I had moved to Los Angeles. So uh, I went I went that one summer, six weeks, and I, I was there, um, you know, on I was on a scholarship of sorts, and uh, so it wasn't free, but um, for what you got, it wasn't expensive either. I just want to ask you all day long, what, what a, five days a week with uh, with a master from India. What 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 is a scholarship of sorts? What did that mean back in the mid '60s? Because we know now money is scarce for any of this kind of stuff. So how did you? How would that even come about? Did it come through uh, like a grant writing process or through the conservatory? How did that no, work? No, no. Uh, um, I was actually. Uh, doing some photography at the time as a hobby, and uh, I offered to, um, you know, go around and take pictures of the classes and so forth if they could help me out with the tuition, because uh, I couldn't quite make it on my own as a working musician, and I had a family and so forth, so that's what I did. It was like, it was kind of a stipend, if you might, you know. So it, it had a, anyway, it was what it was, you know. I look back on that time, um, well, I wasn't born during that time, but there, uh, there's there been a book published since then, uh, and I wonder if you, when you say ta- uh, taking pictures, uh, you took pictures of actual just uh, concerts that that were, that took place, or just the no, actual... Just of the, in the classrooms with the, with the various artists and, uh, and, uh, and the, and the, and the uh, master musicians uh, teaching and, uh, and the students and so forth, you know, just for the archives. Whatever happened to him, I have no idea, but uh, it was a long time ago, you know. So, But I have to say that uh, Mahaprush Misra was the uh, tabla player with Ali Akbar Khan, and Ali Akbar Khan is, um, was uh, Ravi Shankar's brother-in-law. So there was, you know, a master musician, and then um, the relative, Ali Akbar Khan, was also this master musician, and I, I believe that there was a connection there. And it, and it goes all the way back to George Harrison with the Beatles, if you want to follow it back to how that all started, uh, as far as becoming popular and becoming coming over here where people actually got exposed to it, you know. And I think a lot of people had to be exposed to it in a big way for it to survive. And the reason why it was expo- the exposure was so big is because the Beatles were so big. I mean, they sort of changed everything when I lived here in the 60s. Uh, you know, they hadn't come on the scene yet. And when they did come on the scene, a, a lot of things changed musically. But one of the things was that uh, because of George Harrison's interest in this music, it came over here. And so some of us got a chance to actually study with these guys, and I was one of them. You know, I, I read Nat Hentoff's liner notes, and I... I... You know, I don't play percussion myself. I'm I'm kind of a singer, but what did it do to your to your to your brain listening to the uh, to the polyrhythms? As far as like, did it did it it expanded your uh, ability to understand sound? Can you talk a little bit about how it how it expanded your ability? Well, to... basically, uh, a polyrhythm is layering times on time. If you can think of a, you know a good analogy, maybe if you drop a pebble in a in a pool of water. The rings go out in um, in a, 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 a predictable way every time, and that's because um, there's a, a rule, a, a law of physics somehow that makes that happen the way it happens. Well, in music, um, you don't have to have one layer of rhythm, two or even three layers. Did we lose? He's still there. Well, we apparently we lost Peter Magadini, uh, polyrhythm drummer, uh, and he. Uh, one of the things that he was talking about that was really quite fascinating was the idea that uh, George Harrison, who was a member of the Beatles, uh, he he brought uh, he brought uh, Eastern Indian music over uh, to the 
to the States. And uh, actually, there's a great album uh, by Ravi Shankar on uh, the uh, Dark Horse label in which Ravi Shankar and his entire family uh, essentially, um, you know, uh, played on the album. So uh, this has been uh, quite fascinating uh, for me, and we're, we're working our best to get uh, Peter Magadini back on the line here as fast as we can. Just, just, just for a point of reference here, I wanted to to uh, to read something here in the sense that, uh, you know, he, uh, Peter, at one point uh, returned to the valley, uh, and he uh, he went back and uh, he brought two musical degrees with him, and we're we got Peter back on the phone. Peter, you there? Yeah, I don't know what happened. It's okay. No, keep going. You were doing great. So Harrison brought the appreciation of of uh, Eastern Indian music here, and uh, Mana Purush, take it away from there. Uh, you know, uh, just basically, I, I, he taught me how to how to think about rhythm in a way that uh, Africans and Indians have been thinking about it for years, and other cultures, uh, and you know, Afro-Cubans and uh, Brazilians and so forth, but seemed like we didn't have a system to get there. And so what I did was I, I just basically took the very simple ideas of layering rhythmic meters that, uh, that work well with each other and, uh, and then subdivide them just like we do with our normal rhythm in the way we, anybody who learns the musical instruments learns how to play quarters, eighths, triplets, and sixteenths. Well, then all I did was take quarters, eighths, triplets, and sixteenths and put them in a related time. So if you go into six over four and a half times faster. Now that is, sounds very complex, but honestly, it's really simple. It's compared to what some of these things that these guys could play polyrhythmically. Uh, it's just some basic uh, ABCs uh, of, of rhythm that I felt that we all should know as musicians. So I got on this thing about you know, and I, don't, I wanted to bring it to the forefront to everybody. And the other thing is, Indian musicians don't notate their music. It's all done by syllables. So uh, I worked it out so I could notate the idea, but in our system. So that's basically what I got a chance to create, was to bring polyrhythms to our system of notation. And I'll tell you, if your listeners are still with me after all this... No, uh, they're, still, they're not going to leave Peter Magadini. Don't, don't worry about that. <laughs> more to my career than, than these books, but trust me. But, you know, I mean, like, at that time, as best you can remember, what was, you know, you you said the class whittled down to eventually four four other people, and you started writing these books. When, in, in the Bay Area, what was your, when did you find you had, you were in your best position to do writing? Was it, was it, uh, was it in the morning? Was it in the evening? And how did you, how did you write it for the lay person? I mean, I think that's that's something that's extremely important because I, I just as a point of reference, I was watching your YouTube videos with some of my students in my school who who were drummers, and after about three or four times, I started to understand it. But I think there's a talent in writing for something that at least visually looks complex, but then putting it in in the lay terms. And I was just wondering how you how you when you felt you were in your best kind of way of uh of being able to write that stuff well you know uh, i have to remember that uh, I, I mean i'm also uh also, i was also deeply into my jazz drumming period at that time and i was um listening to drummers like elvin jones and out in there yeah we're here and uh so i i really uh i really did this for musicians i didn't do it for lay people i mean you have to understand something about music uh, and how rhythm works uh, to to work them out to be able to play them, but to hear it, I mean, you know, uh, if you uh, if you go to my uh, YouTube clip, polyrhythms and introduction, I start off with an African beat. I'm playing all by myself, and I got I have four different ensemble players, and what they play individually in that one. Uh, clip in the beginning of the of the polyrhythm clip there because it's so polyrhythmic and now this is West African this is not Indian so um, it's you know it, it's it's so vital to our music uh, because West African is where all our music all of, all of roots of our music being jazz and Western music that has rhythm to it you can trace it all back to that. And so, uh, you know, that was another big, important uh, influence on my life. So 
between those two things, I felt compelled to write this thing. I felt uh, it needed to be written. So, I, you know, I don't know if I did it in the morning. I did it all the time until it was done. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, and then I had a hard time getting it published. It was a that was the next next step. Uh, Nobody knew what I was talking about. You know, <laughs> so that's what I'm saying. You know, it was it was, for, it was quite revolutionary at the time. Yeah, and uh, so you know, but I did find a publisher in Los Angeles, Bob Yeager at the Hollywood Professional Drum Shop had a small publishing company called Tri Publishing, and they uh, they put it out. And once it came out, musicians were into it. You know, I I, I didn't know it was so popular uh, until I went to a. A music trade show and people seemed to know who I was and uh, I was I was kind of amazed you know I I didn't I didn't realize that it was through this book that uh, this book had taken on such it had taken on a life of its own let me put it that way and and kind of has all along it's 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 stayed it's stayed in there it's it, it's not a it's not something I sell huge numbers of but it's consistent all the time there's always people like yourself who are interested in a topic and uh, which is good. I mean, I think I think that's a healthy thing for for music. Let, let's. Uh, we're talking with uh, jazz drummer Peter Magadini, and Pete. I wanted to to take go back in time a little bit before that. Um, can you talk a little bit about your upbringing, as far as uh, your parents? Did, did they were they blue collar workers? Were they intellectuals? Uh, what kind of environment did you grow up in, and what kind of music were you exposed to as a young kid? Well, my parents liked. Uh, Good question. Uh, uh, my parents liked swing jazz, uh, and they liked to dance. And uh, so they weren't musicians. My my father, when I was born, my father was uh, in the service. He was a pilot in the Second World War. And then, uh, you know, when he got out, my parents moved to Palm Springs. We were back east. I was born in Massachusetts, and then they moved to Palm Springs. And in Palm Springs, I had, uh, you know, my mom worked in uh, in uh, in restaurants while my dad went to, to school on a GI Bill. So, uh, so I'd hang with her sometimes, and you know, hear some good music in some of the places in Palm Springs, and uh, and and that's when I started playing the school band in Palm Springs when I was uh, ten, in the fifth grade, and, uh, and 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 that's how it started for me. Uh, I'm I'm a I'm a product of school band. If there's any school band directors out there listening, uh, I want to say thank you to all you people for the hard work. And uh, and it's not easy being a school band director, trying to teach, you know, 30, 40 kids how to play uh, 10 or 15 different instruments. And uh, But um, these band directors that I had all through my uh, public school education were all just terrific. And, uh, and they're the reason why I became a professional musician because, uh, you know, they hung in there with me, and I didn't take any private lessons. I never took any private lessons until I was out of high school. So I was all a play-by-ear guy, and uh, I played rock, and I played in marching bands, and I pretty much did that. I played in marching bands, and I played in rock bands, and I played in country bands. By this time, we had moved to Phoenix, and my dad became a structural engineer and had his own firm in Phoenix. And... Um, so my background then, while I was in, in high school, was uh, my parents and their friends were pretty much uh, engineers and architects, and uh, and that's a that's a, 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 a you know a high level of uh, educated and talented and artistic people in their own right. So you know I, w- I was sort of surrounded by thinkers, and uh, I think I think it, it rubbed off into my my own way I, that I approached music and things as well. But I, I, but I was exposed to the music through my parents as far as uh, swing music and big bands and stuff because they really they were really into it and they used to like to dance to that music. So I think it had a big influence on me. Yeah, modern American music back in the middle part of last century was bandstand. I mean, it was dancing music. And I remember talking to a good friend of yours, John Hurd, a while back, and he he was talking about playing the bass. He's like, it's just about making people dance. You got to make people dance. You got to feel it. And if you don't, you're not doing your job. And that is not really jazz now. Uh, I don't know what it's like. <clears throat> I should also mention Peter plays several nights a week with the uh, at uh, Harris's Steakhouse with the uh, the Susan Chen Trio. Is that correct? That's correct. Good for you. And yeah. and, uh, and 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 it's more. I mean, I I could be wrong, but it's a lot more. 
mm, egalitarian. I don't know what the right word is. It's just sort of jazz is taking on this sort of uh, it's not a, a common folk kind of kind of, t- uh, you know, uh, music. So you're paying more at the door. It's more about drinking. Maybe you take a date there, but it's not about boogieing down. Well, uh, I, 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 you know, that 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 particular engagement is uh, is uh, we play in another part of the restaurant in the lounge and, and people who, who enjoy listening to music and having a fine dinner uh, hang with us in there. So we actually have two parts of the restaurant. Some people and, and our music is piped into the other side, too. But, uh, you know, we're not in that room. We're just in there through the speakers in, 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 the, in the restaurant. But uh, yeah, I don't mean specifically otherwise you can come and, you, you, you know, I have a table right next to me. You can sit right next to me if you want to sit close to the drummer. Uh, you can get, we can be so close we can have a conversation. And sometimes I do, and sometimes I have drummers sitting there, and sometimes I have people, I just see them getting into the music. Well, we play a, a wide variety of, uh, of, of different things, and, uh, and if, you can, if you want to dance to it, you can. We have a little space. People don't dance too often because it's really not set up for dancing, but it's a band that grooves pretty hard, so... You know, I'm 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 like John. I mean, I, I think that music has to feel good first, and uh, if it if it doesn't if it doesn't get me that way, uh, then I'm, I'm I'm usually not in the band. <laughs> yeah, you don't. That's what John said. He goes, I don't stick around too long after that. Um, we are gonna go, we got a, just about a minute and a half left before we go to a hard news break. Or uh, we're joined by uh, drummer Peter Magadini, who spent uh, uh, his formative years in in the Valley with when. Uh, Phoenix had a vibrant, vibrant jazz scene from 59 to 62. We have a whole lot more to talk about with Peter, and I can assure you the second half hour is going to slow down a lot. We're going to play, uh, it's going to be more like a slower ballad, so to speak, Peter. We're not going to do a lot of up-tempo stuff, but we're going to, we're going to do some, uh, you know, some, whatever. We'll do some analysis, but I just, I, I have to tell you, it's, it's just so great uh, to have you on the program, and we're going to talk, and I guess the, what I was trying to get at um, and what I want you to think about as we go to break here is the difference between um, jazz venues, not necessarily Harris's, but jazz venues now and the half note where you were playing with George Duke and John Hurd back in the mid 60s and uh, talk a little bit about the I've seen pictures of the half note and talk about the feelings there and what was happening there musically and sort of have we become more restrained as a society at, at large. That's just sort of a. Uh, philosophical question. We're going to take a, we're going to do a hard break, Pete, and you just hang tight. We'll come back on the other side, okay? Very good. All right, now. Brother Kenny Powell on the drums and Brother Larry McDonald on the bottom. CNN Radio. I'm Barbara Hall. Engineers have begun opening the Morganza Spillway on the Mississippi River in Louisiana to save New Orleans and other cities downstream. CNN's Ed Lavendera is there. This is a, a historic day. This, these gates have not been opened uh, and, and needed for this kind of flooding in, in, uh, in almost 40 years. Last time this was opened up was in 1973. So uh, this is not something that uh, people see very often in their lifetimes. All that water will flood vast, low-lying areas of the state. The two-month uprising in Syria has forced hundreds of people to head into Lebanon for safety. A U.N. official says most of those crossing the border are women and children. Father and son imams were arrested today in South Florida. Another relative was arrested in California. The U.S. Justice Department says all three provided support to the Pakistani Taliban. The most trusted name in news, this is CNN Radio. Here's another Home Depot advantage. A special buy on one and a quarter cubic foot bags of miracle Grow potting mix for just $6.88. That's a guaranteed low price on organic soil proven to grow plants and vegetables up to twice the size. Find it lower anywhere else and we'll beat it by 10%, which means even bigger savings on even bigger plants. All thanks to miracle Grow potting mix for just $6.88. More saving, more doing. That's the power of the Home Depot. U.S. only. See store for details. Here's another question from the Geico Savings Mailbag. Susan from Miami asks, do you believe virtue is its own reward? 
Ah, yes, indeed I do. But I also think cash is a pretty nice reward. And cash is exactly what you could save when you switch to Geico. Right. Yeah, and Geico also offers rewards in the form of good driver discounts, multi-car discounts, and defensive driver discounts. So maybe discounts are their own rewards. Hard to argue with that. For a free rate quote, visit Geico.com to see how much you could save. Geico. 15 minutes could save you 15% or more on car insurance. Folks, this is Jake Feinberg. Every Friday night, I get takeout from Baitong Restaurant, which serves Tucson's most authentic Thai cuisine. Pad Thais, fresh vegetables, and spicy Penang curry are my personal favorites, but every meal is sumptuous and cooked to order. Located at 4853 East Speedway Boulevard, Baitong serves compelling and affordable lunch specials as well as a full dinner menu. Baitong has ingratiated itself with the community by providing a peaceful environment to enjoy a meal with friends and family. Open weekdays for lunch 11 to 3, 5 to 9.30 for dinner Sunday to Thursday until 10 on Friday and Saturday. So come down to Baitong Restaurant at 4853 East Speedway Boulevard to experience a taste of Thailand. When Coffee Times first opened, many wondered how this standalone coffee hut could survive among the beasts of Java lore. Ah, but some 10 years later, the answer is a resounding yes. Located at 3401 East Speedway Boulevard, Coffee Times specializes in many different drinks from mocha fraps to lattes to my personal favorite, the Ice Power Coffee. The best part about Coffee Times is their convenient two-way drive-thru, lunch menu, and supreme service. Not to mention their weekly special. The next time you're in the area, head over to Coffee Times on Speedway between Albertan and Country Club. It will definitely kickstart your day. Folks, this is Jake Feinberg. One of the first things I wanted to do when I moved to Tucson was find authentic Chinese cuisine. After a tip from the Chinese Student Association, I headed over to Badar Chinese Restaurant. Well, it's been seven years, and I have never looked back. Located at 7321 East Broadway Boulevard, Badar has been a family-run operation since 1992. The award-winning chef produces succulent dishes from sizzling ginger chicken to salt and pepper shrimp. The thing that separates Badar from the rest is that the chef procures ancient oriental dishes with the exotic island flair of Taiwan. Most importantly, there are no gimmicks or razzle-dazzle at Badar. You won't find any flat-screen TVs or karaoke machines. Badar is a place to go enjoy good food and spend time with your family. It exudes peace and tranquility after a long week of work. So come down and check out Badar Chinese Restaurant. Hong Hao Chu, it's that good. Folks, this is Jake Feinberg. Being a father, I know there is nothing more important than your child's health. And nobody is more dedicated to children's health in Southern Arizona than Dwayne Dyson. Dr. Dyson is Tucson's finest pediatrician and has devoted much of his professional career to improving the lives of children. Located at 4530 East Camp Fort Lowell, Dr. Dyson's resume speaks for itself. After doing his undergraduate work at Cal Berkeley, his schooling took him to Morehouse School of Medicine, where he mentored young adolescents about the need for pediatric physicians in Atlanta and worked extensively with infants at the Texas Children's Hospital. The special thing about Dr. Dyson is that while his in-house care is exceptional, he also prepares families about what to expect once they leave the office. Dr. Dyson provides comprehensive and honest analysis for all of his patients. Dr. Dyson and his family live and work in Tucson because he knows how vibrant and diverse the community is. He is committed to procuring a robust family health center that can instill trust and alleviate the concerns of parents. Like I said, his resume speaks for itself. For more information, check out DysonPediatrics.com. Hi, this is Tommy DiMaggio. When your friends or relatives come to beautiful Tucson and you have already taken them to the Desert Museum in Sabino Canyon too many times, it's time for something different. What's different, you ask? Purple Mountain Pack Goats. That's me, Tommy DiMaggio, and my wonderful goats. We've been leading hikes in the Coronado National Forest for 15 years. We take people of all ages and abilities on beautiful hikes in the surrounding mountains and deserts. I provide great meals, animal companionships. We have day hikes or overnight hikes. We have been featured in Arizona Highways, the Sunday London Times Travel Section, National Geographic Canadian Travel Magazine. For information or for your personal hike, call 403-4056 or visit us on the web at azpackgoat.com or call 403-4056. Remember, bring your field guide, camera, and imagination. We'll bring the rest. A great lunch carried by the goats. 403-4056 or visit us on the web, azpackgoat.com. If you're not part of the solution, you're part of the problem. Be a part of a new coalition with Jake Feinberg. The second half of your show starts right now. Welcome back, everybody, to the Jake Feinberg Show. And if you're not part of the problem, you're part of the solution. And 
The man who's becoming part of the solution today is uh, drummer Peter Magadini. Peter, I want to welcome you back to the Jake Feinberg Show. Yeah, Jake. So, did you want, can we just pick up on where I left off with the uh, the vibe at the half note, but uh, counter to what's kind of what's going on in jazz now? Yeah, you know that's funny. I still see some of the guys from the half note who used to work there years ago. Uh, they come into the Harris now and then. Yeah, you know, some of the bartenders and uh, <clears throat> actually the the, the owner too, Warren uh, H. Warren, sometimes drops by and says hello. Uh, that that club, I'll tell you how that happened. That was a, that was a. I was going to school at the conservatory, and George Duke was uh, at started school right after I did, and uh, so we formed a trio, and uh, so uh, here was this 19-year-old. I mean, George Duke at 19 was playing great. I mean, he was, he was, you know, a prodigy already. And uh, so I would, I was playing with George around, and we were doing some gigs, and we got John Hurt on bass. And uh, so I had played in the half note with somebody else, um, an organ trio. And so I remembered the the venue, and I had seen, known that they had the organ trio had since left. Uh, and uh, I had played with. Uh, George Duke for about a year, and I ran into the owner at another club, and I said, I'm playing with this young piano player. I said, what are you doing at the half note? He says, Pete, I don't know. He says, we, we, uh, we're, we're sort of at a loss of what to do next. I said, listen, you got to listen to this kid, man. I said, he's, uh, you know, I was 22 myself, but I said, you got to listen to George Duke on uh, our trio. Give us a couple. Still there? Yeah, we've been having problem technical problems all day with uh, with polyrhythmic drummer Peter Magadini. He was just in the process of explaining the half note, which was a a vibrant club in the uh, in the Fillmore district in uh, San Francisco, uh, and he he did trio work down there with uh, with with George Duke and John Hurd. Al Chechi was also a part of it, but it, you know the crowds were were filled with with blacks and whites and all sorts of uh, of ethnic people and. Uh, uh, the smell of patchouli was was rampant throughout the place, and and really it was it was a it was a different scene. Whereas to now now you go to uh, you know uh, you know the regatta bar and, and you're paying forty fifty bucks an hour uh, forty fifty bucks a show uh, to see some great music, but it's uh, it's a little more uh, trite, you know, and and uh, and so I think uh, you know I think that it's important to understand uh, that we've come uh, we've we've changed in some ways over the last forty years or so, and. Um, you know, I, I we're back. Huh? Yeah, no, it is, it's, you know, it's, you know, we're just, it's okay. You know, we, this is, our phone is acting. I don't, listen, I, we're right there. Keep going. We're fine. All right. So anyway, uh, to make a long story short, I started playing with George at the half note in, uh, 65. And uh, I stayed there for a couple of years and Al Jarreau came in, sang one night and, and he got the job. So we were, we were the first of trio. Then we were in field with Al Jarreau. And then uh, after that gig ended, I stayed around here for a little while. Ended for me. I stayed stayed around here for a little while. I was the house drummer at the Hungry Eye, and I was also uh, working the Playboy Club when I wasn't at the Hungry Eye and wow. doing that kind of work. And then I moved to L.A., and, and then that was a whole other period of my life uh, when I moved to L.A. And so that was the start of the 70s. And then I, I played with Bobby Gentry and Diana Ross while I was in L.A. I was her first tour drummer. So you were doing... But you, I also, go ahead. And I just played a lot of jazz in the, in the jazz clubs around Los Angeles and stuff. You know. and, and, and I have to mention one thing. All this time, since 1965 or 66, I have been playing with Mose Allison. And I still play with Mose Allison today. We're opening for Diana Krall and... Uh, Lake Tahoe uh, next month on the 18th. Yeah, Mose occasionally meanders down to the Tucson area, and he is all business. He'll play two long sets. He will get up there. He will tell you exactly what he's playing. He'll play the tune, and he'll go on right to the next one. He is all business. But, Peter, uh, lo- well, I've been on. I've been on those gigs. That's been me. <laughs> uh, you know, You've I, been there. That's that's I, me. I'm the drummer. <laughs> it's possible that that uh, I saw you at the Temple of Art and Music a few years before I ever started this this uh, this journey that I'm on right now. But we have a lot more to get to with Peter Magadini, and actually, you know, I, Pete, what I what I tend to do with some of my guests is, uh, you know, we t- we can talk all we want, but at the end of the day, I want people want to hear people want to hear your sound, and uh, I want to play a, a brief clip from a, a tune called Modulator, which is a tune that you and George uh, co-wrote together, 
And when we come back, uh, talk a little bit about it, okay? Absolutely. Hit it. Yeah, so uh, I'm, my, you know, I still get, uh, I'm sweating right now. I had uh, my daughter and I help. My daughter helped me pick that tune out this morning, Pete. But I mean, you take it from there. Uh, well, yeah, the modulator. If it, I'm glad you let it play that long because after Dave Young's bass solo, there, you'll hear the uh, the rapid tempo that we're playing at shift to another tempo. Exactly. And, and, That's and why that, mo- that tempo modulates back down. So what happens is we started at the tempo. And it mod- we modulate with metric modulations, which is a polyrhythmic term, to going into a new polyrhythmic time signature. Instead, you know, instead of just going to twice as fast, we're going up one. Uh, we're, we're stepping up just one and a half times faster, and then we're coming down three quarters times as fast. So it goes up and down <laughs> like a staircase of, of rhythmic modulations. And uh, what better guys to have uh, on, on, on a date to do that than George Duke and Dave Young from Canada, uh, Oscar Peterson's last bass player, actually. It, it just it, how does exactly? And I, I was listening to that today, and I said I need to because I want to get uh, I want to get George in on it, but I also wanted to get the the rhythm section with you and Dave playing. And then when it came out of there, I noticed that there was clearly a uh, a, a modulate. Uh, metric modulation shift if that's what you call it and i and i wanted to ask you is that something that you guys discussed before or is that sort of a wave of like an as as you say a staircase that develops naturally well it it could develop naturally but uh you know i told the guys that what we're going to do with this tune is we're going to modulate up in quarter note triplets and we're going to modulate down in half note triplets and and those are very uh easy metric modulations to make because they're easy to hear and uh, uh, it would be difficult uh, more difficult if we were going to modulate up let's say in five as five over four being the new tempo and modulate back down in five over uh, in and maybe uh, uh, how would that work if we would modulate back down in uh, uh, two and a half uh, over four as the, as a new tempo. I mean those, those would be very abstract to do that we'd have to practice that but for this 
this is this isn't too difficult to do that. But yeah, we had a little plan that was, uh, but that was up to you know we just did it whenever we felt we were going to go in that direction. We didn't we weren't counting bars or anything. When you just, uh, doing by feel, it's a good uh, we're talking to Pete Magadini here, drummer, author, teacher, um, all everything polyrhythms. Uh, Pete, I wanted to I wanted to ask you. It's a good segue here. Let's talk about your experience in Toronto because from my take, and I was telling my, my board op, Chris, during the break, you know, there were a, a, a few major labels in the 70s, Capitol, Columbia, I'm just to name a few, and, you know, you had a lot of session drummers. You know, you see the same guys reappearing over and over again, and you chose a different route. You chose to go to Toronto for, for several reasons, and um, why don't you talk a little bit about your experience up there um, as a player and as a teacher? Yeah, well, you know, I've always been teaching, so uh, I I, uh, I haven't had a problem with finding good students wherever I've gone. Uh, I, I actually I went up to Toronto because uh, I had a young daughter who had a collarbone injury, and I took her to the emergency hospital in L.A. once, uh, where I lived in Burbank, St. Mary's, and they wouldn't see her because they didn't have the money to spend on the emergency room. Uh, they wanted cash up front, and I didn't have it, so. Uh, it, it kind of gave me a wake-up call, and I had been in Toronto with uh, Bobby Gentry, and I'd done some TV there, and the guys were really good players, and they all invited me out. They, they said, boy, come on out. And I had this option to go because my uh, wife at the time was Canadian, so uh, I went out there uh, as a landed immigrant and uh, and uh, enjoyed good health care and uh, enjoyed playing with some great musicians in Canada while I was there. And I went to the University of Toronto and did a master's degree, uh, just in case and nothing else was going to work out. I was, I was still in school doing that. So, but I, I got so busy in Toronto, I just stayed there, and I became a studio musician up there for a while. So, that's kind of it for Toronto. That's uh, that was a while ago, but I got to play with some great players, and uh, and uh, you know we don't know those guys very much down here, but. Uh, you know, you you hear about them every so often uh, when they come out, like Diana Krall or Oscar Peterson or uh, or Rush. You know, that's a Toronto band. Oh, even even uh, uh, so. even the great uh, you know, Ronnie Hawkins and the the original members of the band, like Levon Helm and Rick Danko, yeah. those guys. You know, they were. Levon talks about the, the the amount of music that you were could could see in Toronto back. You know, he came from Arkansas, but still, uh, amazing music scene up in Toronto. Yeah, so, yeah, there was a scene up there for sure, you know, so I stayed up there. Then I moved up to Montreal before coming here to say I taught at McGill and Concordia Universities, and I played the Montreal scene. And then uh, uh, my wife and I came back uh, to uh, what was her first time to San Francisco, and, and, I, and I was moving back to San Francisco. So we've been in the Bay Area since 97, so I'm, I'm sort of back home. Yeah, you, I'm very envious of you, my friend. I mean, I, and I love Tucson, and I love KJLL, the Jolt, but uh, Marin County, it's it's special out there. Problem is, I don't want to live in a closet for seven million dollars a year. Um, <laughs> I, <laughs> I, <laughs> you know, it's it's uh, yeah, it, it, it's a nice it's a nice area to live. The weather's nice, but uh, you know, I, I I love Tucson when I go there and play. Uh, the only time I played there is with Moe's, but we've been there three times now, and. Uh, I think it's I've really. It every time. I think it's great. It's uh, there was obviously some sort of uh, synergy there because I I definitely saw you. Uh, it was a few years ago, but uh, you were definitely on drums. I wanted to uh, read a clip here um, from a magazine. It said Fall 1975, Phoenix, real after hours jazz until 4 a.m. with a very hip band, Zeke Zokler on alto and tenor sax, Prince Shell on piano, uh, Curtis on bass, Peter Magadini on drums. Pete is famous to drummers as uh, as author of an advanced polyrhythm book and played amazing solos, while also being very musical, swinging group who loved Billy Higgins, often dedicated a tune to him. One night after a Zappa show, the Bongo Fury tour, great tour, saw Captain Beefheart alone in the El Bandito listening to Pete's band until 2 a.m. for a couple of sets. So, Pete, you, you after after Toronto, you moved back to the Bay Area. When did you actually come back to the Valley of uh, uh, the Valley of the Sun? Well, you know, I was just on a stop off. I was actually had planned to move back to the Bay Area at that time, uh, and uh, I stopped in Phoenix, and I and I wound up at this club, the El Bandito, and uh, the thing kind of took off. 
so uh, I, I stayed there for a while in, uh, in Phoenix because uh, when things take, you know, it's unusual to have something to take off in Phoenix um, that's as <laughs> popular agree. as this was. Right. And so uh, it became a happening, and, and gosh, you know, people came from everywhere to hang out, and I started bringing people down to play at the club, and I'd look out in the audience, and there'd be people, out, you know, somebody would say, oh, so-and-so from this band or so-and-so from that band came in tonight. It was really dark in there, you know. It was uh, it started out as kind of the worst Mexican restaurant in town, but it it, it, it was, uh, <laughs> it used to be a Chinese restaurant at one time, and I used to, I worked there in the, when I was in high school as, a, as in the jazz lounge, but the jazz lounge had become a, sort of a honky-tonk bar, and the restaurant had become kind of a Chinese version of a Mexican restaurant. Boy, that is didn't really make hard. It as a Mexican restaurant very much, but the El Bandito did make it as an, an after-hours club, and uh, so I, I hired Prince Shell, which a legendary Phoenix pianist, and Jim Zeckler, they call him Zeke, and Curtis Gwynn on bass. And uh, we played there for two years. And Anybody who was ever in that place, I always remember it. I, I get people that come up to me, uh, even here in the, in the Bay Area, say, I remember you from the El Bandito. So it was a good time in Arizona in that, those couple years that I spent there. What at this point? Um, what do you see in the students that you teach now? Are they <clears throat> are they um, are they looking for to be exploratory? Are they looking for uh, you know to be technically sort of proficient? Um, and um, you know how have you seen students change uh, as far as their their mentality uh, over the years, if at all? Um. Well, you know, that, that's a good question. I, the people who study with me generally are pretty serious, and uh, I, I really don't uh, try to influence them in, in what style of music they want to play. I have rock drummers, and I have jazz drummers, and I have drummers who've gone on to get college degrees, and, and drummers who've gone on to be quite well-known. And sometimes I work with the well-known drummers as a coach in just one area or another. I worked with Steve Smith on polyrhythms, Steve Smith of... Journey and now uh, his uh, uh, his own band, Vital Information, and he's a marvelous drummer. And uh, it's an honor to work with these guys. They're so they're so damn good, you know. And um, so it, the art the art has a lot of interest, and the, and it's it's really progressed. Uh, the live music scene is a little bit off right now. It's going it's going someplace. I don't know where yet. But, uh, <laughs> it is off. It's <laughs> off. There's no doubt it's it, off. It's, but I'm busy, so I, you know I, I really can't complain. I'm I'm, I'm having a, a pretty I'm I've been enjoying a real busy spell in my career, and uh, I don't feel like I'm some old guy playing the drums. You know, I'm sort of like right in the middle of what I love to do. So, you know, I know I have uh, history, and uh, I'm so honored that someone like yourself just picks up on it and says, "Hey, Pete, I know something about what you've done." You know. I really appreciate that, uh, Jake. And I, as all the guys you're talking to uh, who are my age, you know, and still out there doing it, we all appreciate that a, a lot. And um, there's not many people that sort of uh, look up your past, you know. They're always interested in what what can you do for me now. So it's great. Yeah, you know, I, I knew somehow that when uh, when the opportunity came, uh, when, I was, when I was kind of mature enough to take on this role of, of a radio host, that I was going to do something in a niche capacity, and uh, it just took about three months to really figure out that I was completely dedicated to the music during this time period. Uh, I speak of the early '70s and the, and the mid '70s, and guys like yourself, um, because it was uh, it, it, to me. It, it you know nowadays you you sign a this is not so much true for jazz, but for a lot of commercial musicians. You sign a contract for ten million dollars or something like that. I don't know where the desperate edge is, in in so far as making music, making quality music. Whereas uh, back in the sixties and seventies, there was an exploration, and quite frankly, nobody was getting rich off of it anyway. So it was really just about the love of playing, and that just shines through through the music completely. And um, when I talk to the guys now, a lot of them, like Henry Franklin, the bass player in Southern California, or John Hurd. You know, they're playing at Italian restaurants or they're playing at the Mission Inn and they're still just trying to just trying to do their thing. But I don't want to I if it's one thing that I want to do for my on this show, it's I do not want people to forget or in fact, I want people to 
uh, be enlightened about what I consider to be the greatest period of, of, of jazz music in our history. And I know people would, would fight me on that tooth and nail, but that's my role is to highlight that. And, um, you know, so I, I you know, it, it is great. I, I, you know, I, you do owe me one thing and that, that is when I do come to the Bay area, I just would love to get you and, you know, Larry Vukovic and, and John Hurd or George, whoever's available just to come and we could have an old time jam session, just like the half note in 65. If you could help me out with that, <laughs> it would be great. I don't know how flexible everybody is, yeah. but, but uh, I'm yeah. going to, I'm going to come up there, man, because that's the, that's the next step is to continue. You know, we have 51 minutes here and obviously you sat through all my great commercials for my Chinese restaurant and my Thai restaurant. I love all that, but, um, you know, I'm also dedicated to making uh, personal connections out of this and, and, uh, and making it, making it a tribute, a primary source tribute so that someday some younger Peter Magadini who's out doing research because they're curious and they're interested and they want to look back on this. And they're going to have an opportunity to actually hear you in, in, you know, in full, in full voice. So it's, it's 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 been a pleasure. Just before we go, I had to ask you about one final guy. We only got a couple minutes here. Um, he's a he's a one of my favorite drummers, and a guy that had a profound influence on you. And that was Roy Burns. And I was just hoping you could talk to the audience a little bit about who he was and what he meant to your career. Uh, Roy Burns taught me in New York when I lived in New York uh, in the early '60s, and I uh, moved to New York to study, and I studied with Roy Burns. And now Roy Burns is the head of uh, Aquarian Drumheads, and he was also. A, great drummer played with a lot of people and uh great technician and and he's done a lot for my career as he has done for a lot of uh, a lot of other people's careers but uh you know one other thing is you have to think uh you know you're talking about the 70s as if it's a long time ago but if we were talking about beethoven or mozart or something and their music man that would be just like yesterday if we're talking about 30 years ago or 40 years ago you know i mean this 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 music is still it's still out there, and it's and it's still making its mark. I think there's an awful lot of music that uh, I just got through reading Miles Davis' auto autobiography, and uh, you know it it just brought me into that whole New York scene and what it was like in the '40s and the '50s, and um, man, you know that was the music that I grew up on, and uh, I'm still listening to those guys um, play uh, as as great as they were. Uh, still, a lot of still a lot of people are just uh, they've left a lot to be discovered. Let me put it that way. Well said, my friend, and uh, and um, I, I just can't thank you enough, and uh, look forward to for, to doing it again, hopefully uh, in person. And I wish you all the best with the uh, the upcoming Mose Allison and Diane Diane Crawl uh, um, uh, tour that you're about sure, to em- yeah. to embark on. So yeah, come up, we, we, sure, and, yeah, come up and sit next to me in that. Up there at Harris, man, we'll, I'll play drums, and, 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 and we'll have, when I'm not playing drums, we'll, we can still chat. Oh, it sounds great, Pete. Hey, listen, this is the Jake Feinberg Show. We've been talking to Peter Magadini, and we'll see you all next week. Thanks a lot, Pete. All right. Thanks a lot, Jake. KJLL, South Tucson. CBS News. I'm Sam Litzinger. The Army Corps of Engineers has opened the Morganza Spillway on the Mississippi River for the first time in nearly four decades.